This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, 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 wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, Triple R's weekly look into global environmental farces and other and ways of saving our asses. I'm Adam Grubb. Jed McCartney is in the house tonight. We are flying solo, duo? Duo, yeah. 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 Almost solo. How are you doing, Jed I'm, McCartney? I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking forward to listening to you two chatting and interjecting with dumb questions. Oh, yeah. So you are um, inferring that there is a third person in the studio with us. Um, Kat Lavers, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks for Kat, having me. Yeah, Kat's our guest tonight. Um, Kat, you are a garden farmer, is that a fair way of putting it? I know your house, the Plumery, which is on a 14th of an acre in Northgate, is a demonstration permaculture site and I believe in 2016 on a 14th of an acre you produced 350 kilograms of food... How's it going this year? Uh, yeah, it's it's tracking upwards, I'd say, Adam. It's um it's been a really exciting year for many veggies. It's been uh-huh. a oh, great year for tomatoes. Probably about thirty five, forty kilos from one raised bed, and uh-huh. we we're just eating some persimmons before we came into the studio, so they're kicking in now. So yeah, yes, we were. So yeah. Yep. Slight conflict of interest there, but you brought in <laughs> um, some very tasty persimmons for us. <laughs> That's right, and now I'm in a persimmon-induced sugar coba on air. Yeah. So see how that works out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're also primary trainer for Monash University's Green Steps Environmental Change Management Program. Is that still true? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, it's been a while since I've done that. These days I'm more focused on my council work, which mm-hmm. is for a council in Melbourne's uh, West running a sustainable gardening program. Yep. Mm. And you're also involved in the Melbourne Permit. Blitz Collective, which is the Volunteer Backyard Makeover Network in which we're involved in together. <laughs> yeah, so, um, well, thank you so much for coming on Green in the Apocalypse. And we want to talk about some um, of your passions and interests and things mm. that you're doing semi-extracurricular, I believe, but are related to your work life. And there are two things. One is to do with the co-benefits of uh, growing food in the city and possibly some of the negatives as well. Mm. And we want to we want to talk about the because you've got a long history in council. If people are interested in getting um, interacting with council and collaborating with council, the many ways that you can do that wrong and the many ways you can do it right. Mm, absolutely, yep. And um, I've been working in local government now for about four years, and um, yeah, there's certainly patterns that you see again and again of uh, the way that people make representations to their councils. So I'd love to help people get more effective at that, um, especially in relation to my passion, which is urban agriculture. Yeah, sweet. Mm. What, what was your what was your kick off into getting into this this stuff? 
Oh, look, I don't know. It's hard to know where to start. I mean, I'm actually a third generation gardener, but it took me 20 years to realise that. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, I grew up in the southeastern suburbs, in Mount Waverley. I went to Chadston a lot when I was a teenager. Uh Um, But, you know, when I was young, I actually had all these um, food allergies and my mum connecting with her, uh, you know, her family... Uh, knowledge, which is all around nursery production and wartime farming in the UK, um, made the link that perhaps these were actually triggered by chemical uh, pesticides and fertilisers and herbicides. Mm. And so she started growing food at home. That was a natural way for her to try and um, give me some clean food at a time when it wasn't readily available in Australia. So I guess I did grow up with food gardens, um, but it took me being a poor uni student, you know, trying to buy veggies from a supermarket and realising they didn't taste as good and they were costing me a fortune um, and that really helped me to connect with growing my own food. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I had a similar trajectory. My parents were, um, God, when, when I was growing up there was a milking goat and, <laughs> and chickens running around a farm. But, yeah, it took me a while to realise that that was anything of interest. Mm. Yep. Came back to it. So, I, I mean, I, I've sort of, and, and yourself, we've been paying to this attention of there's this, if you go back to, say, the mid-2000s, the idea of growing food in your yard was actually a little bit radical. Like, it seems strange now. It's only, like, 10 years ago, really. My business mm. got on today, tonight. <laughs> and the only story was, oh, here's four young guys that are helping people grow veggies in their yard. Actually, the reporter was a little bit like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and I, I get that. Um, but... It still got through the filters. Sure. And, and yet, you know, so many cultures have a really long and continuous history of growing food at home and it certainly would be pre- pretty mainstream for, you know, the Greeks and Italians to have the tomatoes and basil in the front gardens, not even in the back gardens. Totally. Uh, and, and urban agriculture, I guess it's the same story around the world there where, you know, there are cities where it's always been a fabric, a part of the fabric and the way that they've done things in the city, the cities where people have always needed it to make ends meet and to have access to fresh local food, uh, but somehow the idea of um, growing food on a larger scale in cities, uh, at least in countries like Australia, it hasn't sort of been gaining traction until recently. Yeah, it had a bit of cultural mm. cringe. It mm-hmm. was like, if you're going to grow veggies, just hide <laughs> them up in the back corner because that's a little peasanty thing and mm. it's a bit embarrassing. But it's come back somewhat into fashion. Um, yeah. It'd be very easy for us to overstate the benefits almost because it's, cause it's got a bit of a, you know, okay, if we say it's been like, fashionable for 10 years that's a pretty long time it might be waning I don't know Mm -hmm. but uh, I I certainly you know came to this thinking oh there's these big picture problems to do with climate change um, energy resource depletion and uh, and and social discohesion and atomization and here just Mm -hmm. the simple thing of growing some food seemed to be something which had something to contribute to a broad range of issues and and I love just eating a fresh um, sun-warm tomato with some basil. You've been doing some research into scientific studies into the co-benefits of growing food. Yeah, uh, that's right. And, um, you know, I guess not overstating the benefits is something that enthusiasts like you and I really have to be careful of. Yeah. And so one of the most, um, I guess, intuitive aspects of growing food 
uh, close to where you live and urban agriculture in cities is that by minimising the transport, we'd be reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, And when you go looking through scientific journals and peer-reviewed papers, uh, looking for evidence of that, the picture, you know, as with many things, it starts to get a lot more complicated. So Mm -hmm. one of the most interesting things in the research is it's, you know, the yeah, but, (laughs) the yeah, yeah, nah. Uh, So... You know, it's clear that food-related activities are around 30% of our um, impact, or 28% of our eco-footprint, according to the Victorian EPA. Eco-footprint, so... So that the land area that would be required to sustain our activities. Yeah. So food, um, you know, consumption by category, food ends up being actually really large. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet producing some of that food locally really depends how you do it, whether or not you get a greenhouse gas emission benefit from that. So certainly there are some studies, um, there's been life cycle analyses of, say, for example, lettuce production in Sydney, where mm-hmm. they've shown, yes, there's definitely benefits of, of having those in a, a peri-urban or an urban area as opposed to a rural area. Mm-hmm. There are other studies so that... you're talking um, about, like... Actual farms rather than people growing in their backyards, I am, yeah, but yeah. close to the city. We, yeah, we're talking slightly larger scale here at yeah. commercial production, uh, not just the home gardens. That's important to yeah. to specify. Urban agriculture is is really moving a little bit beyond the home garden mm. scale, but can still include uh, community gardens, school gardens, um, urban market gardens, and other food related food related enterprises mm-hmm. such as um, distribution and you know value adding. Um, people manufacturing local foods as well. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, so it turns out that, um, you know, there's some pretty high-tech, uh, high-input farming out there, and even if it's done in an urban area, yeah. uh, the energy inputs that need to go in to produce that end up being pretty uh, pretty significant, and you may not get a greenhouse gas emission benefit. We actually talked about vertical farming on the show two weeks ago yep. and the idea of, yeah, you growing things under grow lights in shipping containers or warehouses, sure. and it yep. did not look good from environment, an environmental perspective. Yeah, no, so, so that certainly doesn't stack up. And, and there was one pretty interesting study um, focused around Boston uh, in the US, which is a cold climate. And um, disappointingly, the, the authors uh, of that study ended up saying you'd be better off installing solar panels on that land rather than farming it if greenhouse gas emissions was your sole objective. Um, But, you know, they did conclude that there's plenty of other reasons why you might want to grow food in cities where people live Mm -hmm. um, and the social um, connectivity and also the economic benefits. And I think they came up with something like $160 million uh, a year that it could actually offer the local economy, just as an example. So look, the... $160 um, million a year because people... People are growing food and selling it yep. and just buying it. So it keep. What does that mean? It, you're keeping money just circulating. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's city, a local e- economy that yeah. they're, they're stimulating by doing that. So look, uh, greenhouse gas emissions alone. Um, the the research at that larger scale doesn't necessarily say it's a large benefit, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean there's not other really significant environmental benefits to growing food in cities. Um, Some of the key ones, you know, around um, the urban heat island effect that we have in cities are are worth mentioning. And um, so for people who aren't aware... Uh, you know, it's hotter in cities than it is in surrounding areas because of all the concrete and the bitumen that we have that absorb and hold that heat yeah. uh, and uh, release that at night when we'd usually get a break. And we all know that from uh, the searing heat waves and the hot, sleepless, uh, sweaty nights that we get. Mm. Um, there was a heat wave in 2009 associated with the Black Saturday bushfires and um, what people might know is that, you know, we actually lose more people to heat waves than we do to natural disasters. We, in fact, lost 
more people in the heatwave than we did uh, to the Black Saturday fires Mm -hmm. and that was also higher than Victoria's annual road toll. So heat is a, it's a really significant issue and local councils are really trying to deal with that now. And several degrees, the heat island effect. It it is, yeah. And and that can sound like not very much, but uh, people who are, you know, vulnerable and don't have well-designed houses and can't afford air conditioning, Mm -hmm. you know, this is the difference between life and death um, for many people. Yeah. You've only got to look at your weather app in the morning, 13 degrees mm. in the city this morning, 10 degrees at Tullamarine. Yep, there mm. you go. So. And Tullamarine's still rel- relatively built yeah. up and lots of concrete there, mm. of course. So, look, many councils now are trying to address this through increasing canopy coverage, yep. um, planting more street trees and so on. But we also know that um, uh, projects like, you know, urban agriculture where oh. you're uh, replacing concrete and bitumen with... Um, you know, green surfaces that absorb, uh, mm. uh, you know, some of that heat is a really clear benefit. So this could be any foliage, really. It doesn't have to be food producing. Yeah, that's your right. focus is on food. My focus is on food, yeah. So there's obviously other other benefits involved as well, Yeah. Um, as well as that. But I guess it's, I mean, if you go back to, like, like I guess there's good reasons to grow plants for aesthetic reasons, mm. um, but a lot of times you can substitute you know, one beautiful tree for another beautiful tree that also produces walnuts. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, you know, it'd be nice to have a little subsection here and talk about appropriate species choice for those plantings as well. Um, yeah. And that's particularly important when councils come to plan and <laughs> and they don't want to receive lots of complaints about, um, uh, you know, certain types of fruit trees uh, using a lot of water or maintenance and, you know, you know, nuts as well in places where there are lots of children and there's so many nut allergies can be a real issue. Mm. Uh, but yes, absolutely, we can substitute them over. Yeah. Um, I, I guess another benefit that's kind of connected to that is actually um, surprisingly stormwater control and it's mm-hmm. one that not many people have thought of. Yeah. Um, to give you a great example of that, over in New York City, they um, have invested more than one million US dollars over a couple of years into uh, gardens in the city Mm -hmm. uh, funded through their green infrastructure fund, uh, which is all about reducing the um, stormwater load that's shared out through the city's Mm -hmm. sewers and actually ends up combining with sewerage and going into their waterways, um, which is actually, you know, a problem that we sometimes have in Melbourne when we have uh, high volume rainfall events. So it's basically two different wastewater streams. Yes. But in high rainfall events, somehow the sewerage... You know, stormwater does get into sewers all yes, the time. It does. And I can tell you in my house, mm. the one, um, one of the downpipes was running directly into sewer, mm. which is um, a terrible thing to happen. We've, we've diverted it to the garden. In fact, we don't have any stormwater on my block. So yeah. um, the only way we could deal with it without, so it doesn't flood the house is to run it into the garden because we can't get it off the um, property very easily at all. Totally. And it's actually exactly the same at my place. And yeah, and yeah so best practice would definitely be to make sure your stormwater goes to stormwater, yeah. sewer goes to your sewer. <laughs> but yeah, when we have these um, high intensity, high rainfall events, which we know we're having a lot more of now because of the, the shifting uh, climate change impacts that we're seeing, mm. um, one of the major problems for cities is how to how to deal with that mass volume of water. Mm. And in many cases, we've got these uh, stormwater and sewage systems which were built for a city that we're not the same city anymore. And we've mm. developed, we've paved, we've, um, we've got so many more surface now that's shedding runoff mm. uh, that actually just dealing with the, the flash flooding impacts of that and also the, mm. um, 
you know, the problem of combined sewer uh, that, that happens when we have these really high rainfall events. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's certainly what... It feeds uh, the alligators too. <laughs> sometimes they, yeah, they, yeah. they come up through the drains. So. <laughs> they do. And so, look, uh, yeah, New York City has taken this, um, you know, slightly uh, more innovative approach and they've calculated that it was going to save them over 20 years uh, 1.5 billion US dollars having a green infrastructure and what they call grey infrastructure hybrid. So yeah. the grey infrastructure being more pipes, uh, more tanks to kind of hold that water until you can discharge it. Uh-huh. The green infrastructure being gardens uh, and rain gardens and, yeah. and other uh, porous permeable surfaces that can kind of catch and hold it. Uh-huh. And in the case of urban agriculture, actually use that, that water productively. Yeah. Uh, and so Brooklyn Grange uh, Rooftop Farm is one of the, okay. the beneficiaries of that fund. Yeah, because because like by global standards, Mel- Melbourne gets about six hundred and fifty mils of rainfall um, per year, which is what is that about? That's uh, you know kind of like just above your somewhere between your waist and about your waist height. Mm. That's how much water we get. Yeah, um, and that's in a that's in an average year historically. It's probably last twenty years more like you know, 550 or 500. I was going to say, I can only dream of 650. Yeah. <laughs> there hasn't been much the last three months. Mm, and sure um, yet we're, we're, co- we're covered in paving and it's all this water harvesting uh, potential, including roofs, which actually make us a lot more drought resistant than growing food in the countryside. Mm. And one of the things that happened in the millennium drought was that when we... I think there was like a 30, on average, a 30%, this is in the early 2000s, a 30% drop in rainfall in central Victoria. And that meant 90% less runoff into the reservoirs. Mm. So whole areas of irrigated agriculture that depend on those reservoirs were wiped out. But here in the city, we got these hard surfaces, these roofs, and a 30% mm. drop in rainfall, it's not great, but it's only 30% less water, not 90%. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, yep. it does make um, sense. A lot of numbers. But basically it, it is a resilience factor and to think that most of that is actually being just washed out to the ocean unused seems a, a terrible waste. There's so much hard surface. We could You, you can just f- put all that water onto growing areas and we're, we're like we're suddenly in a quite, quite uh, wet climate. Yep, we are, absolutely. And, um, and, and again, on the slightly larger uh, commercial scale, there's... Um, like an interesting figure out of the Melbourne footprint research that Melbourne Uni's been doing recently, mm-hmm. uh, talking about the Western and Eastern treatment plants, which take, uh, you know, our sewage, sewage yep. uh, water from Melbourne. And so we've got one of them in Werribee and one of them out near Dandenong. And they found in that report that around 10% of the available recycled water from those two treatment plants would be enough to grow half of the vegetables that Melbourne eats. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. and they're not at capacity yet. There's only yep. a small fraction of that water that's being of, used. Oh, yeah, and uh, it is being used in Werribee. Some, yeah. some, of it, yeah. some of it, yeah, but we're, we're talking like under 10%, huh. I believe. So there's this absolute and capacity good, there good for farmers. clean water when they're finished with it. Yep, it's absolutely good enough for agriculture. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's I guess um, one of the key... Drink. It's probably good enough to drink. <laughs> You're on your own there. <laughs> <laughs> but the ducks love it. It's actually like a amazing um, wetlands down at Werribee. Mm, yeah. It is. And I guess, some, you know, we're talking about some of the, the challenges with urban agriculture and one of the main uh, issues that we've got to contend with in the future is um, if we start building over those 
farmlands which are adjacent to those treatment plants, then mm. we suddenly lose this uh, drought-proof food bowl that could be sustaining the city yeah, uh, yeah. in the years to come. Uh, so that's certainly one of the pressures that we have on potential urban agriculture is um, mm. land infill and sprawl. So, so let me summarise so far. Like, mm. So you're saying the environmental impacts of growing in the city, it really depends on how you're doing it. I, I've sort of thought that, like, you know, we talk about food miles and transport and things. When you're growing in your own backyard... Yes, yeah. Um, you're doing food meters. That's right. And and a lot of those studies, I think, are, you know, it's hard for them to measure and, yeah. and quantify those impacts. I'm actually really excited at the moment to be participating in a, a good old citizen science, citizen science project uh, for Melbourne University, which has had me weighing every bit of produce we've brought in, but also noting down the hours of time I've spent out there, all the mulch, all the water, uh, all the, you know, compost that we're adding to the garden. So I think that is actually going to be a really exciting study um, to help actually make that case that yes this is a really sound um, environmental uh, Uh practice growing food at home Um, but yeah on that larger scale it really does depend on what type of farming what crops you're growing Mm -hmm. uh, yeah how are you um, how are you actually fertilizing them as to whether you're getting those benefits yeah. I think if, if you're using compost, which is waste stream, to build your soils mm-hmm. and you're using uh, waste water, if you can call it that, that you've collected off your roof yep. um, or running just passively from paths in your backyard into garden beds, mm-hmm. um, it's hard to see how that could be anything but an incredible environmental win when you can say that like food is a 30% of our eco footprint and there you are using a bit of, sp- bit of land that you would be just growing something ornamental anyway, mm-hmm. but for no extra effort, you're getting food out, essentially. Absolutely. And I guess it's just important to, to kind of mention that nuance because when we talk about um, urban agriculture, we want to be really clear on what type of agriculture we want. Yeah. Uh, and people who, you know, live in cities might not be aware that, uh, you know, a lot of food gets um, grown out of season in heated greenhouses and uh, the sorts of proposals that we're right. seeing for urban agriculture around the world include some of these um, pretty high-tech uh, vertical farming solutions that, that may actually not... Uh, on a life cycle analysis mm. uh, stack up. Now, mm. besides environmental benefits, there are some... You've looked into physical and mental health benefits. Can you talk about those? Yeah, sure. Quickly? Um, yeah, I mean, like, you, you know, the environmental case for urban agriculture is there, um, mm. but where it starts to get really strong is around physical and mental health. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, we've got meta-analyses now. Uh, this is not like new science, that mm. there's uh, carefully collated meta-analyses looking mm. at lots of research. Uh, the one main one that I, I've looked at recently concluded that a regular dose of gardening can improve health. <laughs> um, and we know that it does things like signif- significantly increase people's vegetable intake, um, and, you know, for a, a country that's facing a health crisis of which, you know, just not having enough vegetables in the diet um, is a really key part of, that's, um, that's not to be understated, that, mm. that benefit. Um, we know that this works with older adults, uh, works with children, works with low-income groups. Um, you know, children's quite interesting. There's some research that Australian children aged between 6 and 17, uh, 10% can't identify broccoli, 34% can't identify cucumber, <laughs> 59% can't identify a leek, and 29 were unaware that yoghurt is an animal product. 
Uh, so, said, so was, children, yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I was saying to uh, Adam earlier that um, my little fellow's four, and um, <laughs> just the sheer delight he gets from going out and looking. We've got a couple of accidental pumpkin vines and tomato vines in the front yard from um, worm castings and the delight he has in going and checking the pumpkin is it ready yet and mm. then harvesting the little tomatoes as mm. they turn red um you know it's, it's just pure joy it, it and is and and we know now that it's um teaching people important skills that little people in our lives science maths concentration confidence uh, interpersonal skills mm. it's all well researched now that there's mm. some of the things that children are, are getting from exposure to school gardens um and people might not be aware therapeutic horticulture is now a it's a it's a definite like well researched approach and it's been mm. used as an effective mental health they've, they've intervention done, done some stuff as well haven't they where you know they'd like kids grow the food then bring it in and help prepare it so mm-hmm. you know you get that whole sort of cycle uh, yeah, so yeah. that they it's just not like uh oh, someone's prepared a meal for them mum or dad's prepared a meal for them and they've like oh well that's come we've helped grow it we've We've harvested it now. We're we're preparing it, and yeah. apparently there's a fair bit of um, good in that in terms of their diet and understanding and what have you. This is a podcast from Three Triple R One O Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We are joined with Kat Lavers tonight and we have been talking about the benefits, the co-benefits, besides just a extremely tasty apricot. Uh, of growing food in the city, the environmental and surprisingly psychological benefits to this side of stuff. Uh, one of the things we we're just talking about in the break is how um, it can connect people to their food source. And I was thinking, oh, well, that's nice. And is it just subjective? But what it got me thinking of, we had one of our very early guests on this show was, was Joel Salatin, who, for those that don't know, he's arguably the world's most famous farmer. And he is. A redneck creationist, God-fearing, um, libertarian, climate denier, um, but a total character and someone who, despite the fact that I disagree with the way that he gets to his conclusions, when it comes to a lot of folk wisdom and even like the best environmental ways of going about doing things, I just find so much common ground with him and I think it's something to do with that um, and, I, and I only have a taste of this, a small um, fraction of what he has, but like that ability to understand the natural processes that go into growing food mm-hmm. which gives you a certain amount of ecological literacy which feeds into a certain amount of wisdom and if I blow my own trumpet I think I've developed a <laughs> tiny bit of it. Um, is this what we're talking about? Yeah, look, I think so. And, you know, before the break, we were talking about your children that can't recognise common vegetables. And, you know, I guess um, deep within me, I have this fear that children who can't even recognise vegetables will grow into adults who aren't prepared to fight for their farmland until it's too late. And, you mm. know, make no mistake, we, we are in a fight for the world's farmland at the moment and it's facing pressures from so many different angles. Yeah. You know, climate change and, you know, being built over, uh, soil erosion and degradation. Um, These are all issues that we need people in cities to care about. Mm. And um, one of the, you know, key benefits that comes out again and again from studies into urban agriculture is, you know, yes, it it might have some, um, uh, you know, environmental outcomes. It certainly has some physical, mental health outcomes. But even more importantly, this is connecting people to their food 
at using and valuing a resource like soil helps them to care about where the rest of their food comes on and, and that's really important for our farmers as well. How much time do you spend in your garden, Kat? <laughs> because oh, we had some stats earlier on. You, was, what, you one produce several times your own body weight of yeah. food on a... On one fourteenth of, of an acre, yeah, which is that's right. how big? Uh, it's it's under 280 square metres, so in terms of Melbourne Gardens, it's smaller than, smaller than average, mm-hmm. uh, large if you live in apartments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and look, it's, um, it's a good question. I, th- I think I'm spending about four hours a week out there, so it's, it's less time than what most people imagine. Um, mm. And I have to say I often wish I had more time out there because it's such enjoyable time and because, you know, I can feel myself getting some of these benefits that we talked about. I'm physically healthier, I'm, you know, mentally calmer. So that's one afternoon on the weekend. Yeah, that's right. Although I should say this is really unevenly distributed throughout the year. So sometimes it's a whole weekend, some weeks it's 10 minutes. Um, but, yeah, the uh, recording I've been doing for the Melbourne Uni study is suggesting four hours. Mm. Wow. Mm. So, so th- that's not a huge time commitment, is it, for, for us to – well, for you to grow, you're not very big, but so twice your own body weight's not much. <laughs> if you could grow twice my body weight, mm-hmm. now we're talking. But yeah. It's, it's not, not a huge time commitment to grow – that amount of food. Look, it's not. It's it's a it's a big skills commitment though. So mm-hmm. it has taken a number of years to build up the you know capability to produce mm-hmm. that amount of food, and that's one of the other big challenges we have with urban agriculture is lots of people wanting to do it. Um, we know it's it's hugely popular. We know at least fifty percent of Australian households are already growing some food at home, mm-hmm. uh, but we also know that people often um, you know faced with uh, poor yields decide it's not worth the effort, um, mm-hmm. but. Uh, you know, we know it's possible to grow these huge yields. So well, helping gardeners, uh, yeah. <laughs> helping gardeners develop those skills as they used to have in previous generations, is which a is big what priority. your council program does. Yeah, absolutely, that's right. And so, yeah, I did want to talk about how um, people can work with local government effectively to get more of these sorts of projects happening in their cities, yeah. whether it's community gardens, school gardens, um, market gardens, and commercial enterprises. Yeah, just to note, we haven't been very hard on you. We said we would talk about some of the negative. <laughs> of growing food in the city. Is there anything that came up that honestly felt like, okay, that is a trade-off? Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like roundly a good thing to do in cities, but there's certainly questions of, you know, is this a worthwhile use of land? It's mm-hmm. often, as you know, competing with, um, you know, other uses for land in the cities, often housing developments and yeah. so on. Um, but at the same time, if we want Melbourne to remain allegedly the world's most livable city, we can't have a city that's covered in concrete. We have to have green spaces somewhere mm. and there may as well be uh, useful, productive green spaces. Yeah, that's a really mm. good point. There's going to be – we want trees. Yes. And, we, <laughs> and although some – yeah, and there are certain ones that you can have which aren't too – there are controversies if you're going to have like rotting fruit all over the ground and no one picking it, but there's certain things that you can plant which are probably no-lose. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yep. Yeah. I don't think anyone complains about olives or – no, well, they trees. all get picked uh, exactly. where yeah. I am. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Very, yeah, very competitive in Brunswick, I can tell you. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, let's, let's leave that there and let's talk, let's talk about engaging with councils. How long have you mm. been working with council? I've been working uh, with the council for about four years now um, okay. and, and working alongside council for years before that. And uh, when I was working in a community group, uh, one of the councillors in my area, I remember him saying to me quite early on, you have to ask for what you want. Mm. Um, and 
it was a, a short phrase and it's stuck in my mind, but I honestly think it's taken me uh, four years working within a local government organisation to really understand how important that is and, and mm. what exactly uh, he meant by that. So I just, like, I kind of have an idea of what councils do, but I think it's very incomplete. I think, I know they take my rubbish away. Mm. Um, I think they deal with the roads. Uh, I don't know. They organise some festivals. There There must be so much, so much. They yes. manage parks. Yes. So, you know, the old classic is rates, roads and rubbish. And yes, of course, we do those. Um, but there's also a lot of other things that local government does. Uh, firstly, I mean, what we don't do, we don't do defence, we don't do hospitals. <laughs> that would be uh, great though, <laughs> Darabin versus Moreland. Uh, we, we don't the extend train Mary lines. Um, you know, councils often have um, limited control over things like fast food chains, although we are involved in planning. Um, what do you mean? Like oh, stopping them getting into yeah, areas? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, so we often get, you know, overruled by state planning in some of those bigger decisions. Uh-huh. But uh, we are responsible for a lot of things like supporting ageing residents, people with disabilities, um, you know, new mothers. We're planning for rising sea levels and flash flooding, um, doing emergency management supporting newly arrived refugees, um, community cohesion projects, uh, stimulating local economic development. And um, a, a lot of those things that I've just mentioned have links into urban agriculture and, and co-benefits that um, mm-hmm. are, are worth leveraging. Hmm. Um, and, and now you did some research and talked to other people that work in council about um, how our community can, in, can engage. What did you do there? Yeah, so after four years of working in this space, I, I often get people coming up to me and saying, hey, we've got this great idea for a new urban farm that we want to start. Um, and, you know, this, the sorts of projects come again and again. But I started to notice that people were making similar mistakes, I guess, in the way that they approach and try and work with council um, to the point where I decided that I needed to... Uh, do something about that pattern. Mm. And so I interviewed a bunch of different people working in um, local councils at officer level, which is um, what I am, also at the manager, director, executive level. I interviewed local councillors and mayors uh, in urban councils and also a couple of regional councils as well. Um, Just, you know, self-directed research, really to check whether my observations and my kind of pattern recognition was generalisable or whether that was just something weird that I'd noticed in my own job. But luckily, um, you know, there's a lot of alignment there. So Mm -hmm. there's there's plenty that are... that I can share with people. Well, do do share. Do share. So, okay. so let's say, what what are some examples? So you've you've been talking about urban agriculture type things, like oh, let's start a community garden, yep. or can we, I don't know, set up a little food hub, or or. But there's heaps of other things, like classic things would be men's sheds or... Sure, any of those What other projects. kind of projects yeah. do people tend to approach council with? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, look, it could be anything that a community group wants to organise. And I, I guess it's... Um, you might want to use some council land for a project or mm-hmm. you might need a permit for what you want to do. Um, you might want to access grants from council or get some help with marketing or some technical expertise. So whatever community project you've got, uh, most of them can benefit in some way from having a positive interaction with council. Mm. Um, so I guess it's useful for people to understand like who has the power in local government. That's one of the first things that you notice. Uh, and that's um, obviously 
uh, you know, staff like me, we roll out strategy and we make operational decisions which um, lead to success or failure of projects. Uh, but councillors are the ones who are setting the broad scope and the strategy and the budget of council and voting on major decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really important for people coming to councils that they actually express their needs to their local elected re- representatives um, because there isn't a direct line of communication between staff like me and your uh, local councillors. And there's, there's good structural reasons why that's the case. Okay. Uh, but you have to ask for what you want <laughs> so to those for a people. member of the public to talk to a councillor than it is for you. Yes, it is much, much easier. Okay. Um, so the power structure in local council, um, you know, between the councillors and the, the CEO and directors and the staff um, is one thing, but then there's a separate entity, the community, which is outside that power structure and therefore mm-hmm. has the ability to in- intersect with it at any level. Mm. And, and sorry to go all Captain Planet on you, but, you know, the power <laughs> is yours and you've got to use it. Uh, <laughs> one of my interviewees said... I should quote, actually, shit goes on because community don't acknowledge and express that power. Um, and it, people would be probably surprised by how um, how much council does try and find out what people want, yeah. uh, but how hard it is to actually extract those views and opinions from you, the community. You seem remarkably uncynical about <laughs> this level of government, yes. um, which is encouraging. So you <laughs> yeah, think it's actually, they're generally quite good organisations. Oh, look, you, you know, there's a whole bunch of disclaimers I could have given at the start. Like, I don't <laughs> think this, this system's perfect, but I, yeah. can, I can honestly see so much potential. And... You know, this is coming from a place of realising that a lot of the goals and objectives of local councils directly align with the goals of community groups. I mean, council Mm. is there to serve the community. Um, One of the other things that I notice is that we have all these council policies and strategies and plans and the goals are like, you know, improve the physical and mental health of the community, uh, <laughs> for example. And, and communities come with exactly the same goals, but often they don't uh, put it into a form that connects with those objectives, um, which would then receive a lot more support. Mm-hmm. So making the it's case... It's up to you to, articul- to find out what the council's right. stated goals are. And articulate your project in terms of them? Yeah, absolutely. And look, it sounds so common sense, but it's incredible how often that gets skipped over. So you need to find a champion within council, someone who who, who likes the idea and, and gets it. And if they happen to be in the community development team, then you need to talk community development. If they happen to be in the uh, like infrastructure team, then you need to talk about stormwater and urban heat island uh-huh. effect. Uh, so it's actually pitching your argument to the right people within council. It sounds like a challenge to come up with the weirdest thing <laughs> and pitch it in terms of their... Ter- uh, what's the weirdest thing you've been pitched? Oh, look, I don't know if there's weird things that... <laughs> Yeah, like it's all pretty straight for me. But I will say, so Mooney Valley City Council now has rooftop beehives yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's because, um, and that didn't actually come from the community, it came from people within the purchasing team or the procurement team making um, an argument internally that this was a worthwhile project. So, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, some pretty interesting connections that can happen out there. Uh, but the key is pitching it in the right uh, language and, and using um, the right buttons for the right people within council. I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio. 
Greening the Apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. Cat, I've got a pitch. Go for it. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so there's all this food waste in the city. And, you know, making compost is one thing, but a lot of the stuff that you're throwing in your compost is pretty much um, – it's almost food grade. The stuff you've scraped off the plate, um, pigs love that stuff. I want to have a central – like an urban pig farm where you can take cafe waste, fat, fatten them up. They'll be a big area. Plenty, they'll have a great life and uh, we'll have an annual pastrami making day. <laughs> they'll have a bad – few minutes at the end but otherwise um and and all that stuff that would otherwise be turning into compost turns into pig shit and then it gets turned into compost um we've we're using those resources much more effectively um there's going to be challenges people aren't going to like it from maybe from an animal welfare perspective maybe from a smells perspective but i think i've got a pretty good case um what are some of the things that i i should do Okay, well, I guess just before the break, we were talking about um, people you know, getting in touch with their counsellors and asking for what you want. Uh, and so, you know, literally, I want to say to people, don't be afraid to call your counsellors. That's what they're there for. People seem to be really, really shy about this. How do we? You just find their number on the, yeah, web, the, on the council on, website? Yeah, numbers are on council websites. And I just want to assure you out there that if you are not going and pitching for these sorts of projects, mm. your local sporting clubs are uh, phoning up and pitching for yep. other things. Right. Uh, they hear pitches all the time. So it's, mm. it's completely normal for you to pick up the phone and talk to them. Mm. Um, so one of the things I'd say around doing that is it's a bit like dating. It's building a relationship. Uh, You don't go in there and say, hey, you know, want to get married? You go in there and say, you seem kind of nice. (laughs) So one of the things with calling your counsellor is to ask for some of their advice first. You go, look, I've got this idea. Um, What are some of the things that I should uh, consider and, and who should I talk to? And like not going to the counsellor with something that's completely um, overcooked, uh, allowing them to help you shape it into something that, that will match more of their goals uh-huh. um, is likely to give you so more be success. Be a bit flexible. Be a little bit flexible, but mm-hmm. also critically make sure you've, you've done research before you go to them because um, there's a difference between overcooked and uh, half-baked and council <laughs> do get a lot of thought bubble <laughs> communications from people that yeah. really haven't done the work to figure out what it would take. So you need somewhere in the middle where you're, you're mm. informed but you're flexible. Yep. Uh, next thing is, of course, everybody knows how risk-averse councils are um, and so you can help with that process by being aware of some of the things that they might say in advance. Mm. Um, and as you've already kind of flagged with your, your great pitch there, Adam, um, pig farms in the middle of the city, the first people, thing people are going to think of is um, mud and pig shit and smells and mm. potentially noise as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how are you going to manage those, uh, those risks uh-huh. uh, for council and, and being a bit more proactive about mm. how you address them? Well, there's a big problem with recycling um, at the moment and it not actually being used, which has got some media. So I'm thinking about paper shredding and that's going to absorb the, the smells and be a great um, bedding for the p- pigs in a health, healthy way. Great. And, uh, you know, that's linking to their, the their goals, I'm sure. <laughs> um, another thing you can think about is can you inspire these people with successful examples? You will be the head <laughs> of, of urban pigs in Melbourne. Your, your, your career will ever be tied with the pigs. 
<laughs> you can you can try that one and see how it goes. Um, so, so, I mean, doing some research, are there pig farms in other cities, uh, other developed cities, and, and how are they going? And, um, I, you know, I'm not sure about urban pig farms, actually, but for many of the projects that people want to do, mm. there's incredible examples, if not in Melbourne or Australia, certainly in uh, places like North America, where they have a really highly developed urban agriculture mm-hmm. um, system. So, yeah, inspire them, show them these examples, give them data, um, link to their goals. Uh, and, you know, I guess another part of that is coming not as an individual but coming as a group of people um, mm. is much more likely to be successful. Mm. Uh, often you get lone, you know, individuals approaching council and one of the first things council is thinking, even if they don't say it, is has this got any momentum and energy behind it or mm. is this person going to get busy with something else and drop the ball? Yep. Um, so showing them that you are committed for the long term, um, you, you're ready to enter a long-term relationship, to go back to the dating analogy, <laughs> it's not a silly one. Like, like starting a community garden is effectively starting a long-term relationship with council. Mm. Um, so showing them that there's momentum and energy behind your project is really important. And getting yeah. a little bit of those um, love eyes, does that help? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. It's getting, it's getting a bit creepy. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing you were saying, Kat, was about timing. Yeah, and, that's and right. That probably comes in the relationship thing as well. Yeah, but. absolutely. And so there are better times for people to approach council. Um, I wanted to mention specifically that, you know, council does reach out um, regularly to consult to the community. They, they should and, um, you know, Sometimes that's higher quality consultation than others. But uh, councils go through long planning cycles. We're talking, you know, four-year plans at least, sometimes plans that go for 10, 20 years, which Mm. is a good thing. We want our councils to be planning for the long term. Um, But if we've just locked in, you know, a four-year plan of works and then someone says, hey, I've got this huge, great idea, you know, that it's, there's much less flexibility to move. So um, find out when your annual plans are being reviewed and participate in that consultation process. Mm. Um, and that can be online these days as well. So, Kat, you've been doing all this research. Are you going to publish it? Uh, you know, I'd love to. Um, yeah. This is as published as it gets at the moment. But okay. one well, day... Well, thank you for <laughs> publishing it here in this book. <laughs> yeah. Exclusive. Um, now, is there anything that uh, you want to promote before we go? Yeah, there is. And, I mean, look... Um, I've just said ask for what you want and I just want to say keep asking, if, even if you don't hear anything um, and apply that. Um, I'd liken it to, say, a nice deep tissue massage rather than a pressure point grip. It's just oh, this day. <laughs> we, we're, we're getting... We're, we are. We're getting too hot yeah, in here yeah, for yeah. me. I've, you need, you need to keep lucky. asking. And so the ways that people can do that... Um, these days, social media, if you use it, is a great way to stay in touch with your council. Um, there are also websites like Participate and Our Say, where council these days is really normal for people to give input into council plans through those. So definitely do that. The um, uh, open space strategy in the city of Darabin is actually open right now mm-hmm. uh, for the first stage of consultation. So all of the um, Darabinites out there, please, please <laughs> put your ideas in and you can do that online until Friday. Um, so, yeah, I guess I just want to encourage people to get out there and use the democracy that we've got. And we're so lucky in Australia to have a d- democracy, you know, occasionally dysfunctional, but you're mostly there. <laughs> uh, and if you're cynical about local council, the response needs to be more engagement, not less. 
Yep. Um, so that I guess that's the overriding message that oh, it's I want. That's a great uh, message yep. to leave us on. And mm. I also believe that your garden, the Plumery, which produced 350 <laughs> kilos of food in 2016 and probably more this year, is going to be open for inspection as part of that project. So thanks so much for being part of Green the Apocalypse tonight, Cat Lavers. It's been wonderful. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.